you can acquire land at a discount. That's awesome. That is a skill that most people don't have. What can you do with that land and what type of land would you target that would have the most value add opportunity? Welcome to the Big Picture Blueprint. I'm your host, Dan Hebercost, along with Mason McDonald. And we're going to discuss all things land, real estate, and business in general with all kinds of exceptional people. Let's get started. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Big Picture Blueprint. Dan Haberkost and Mason McDonald here coming at you live. And today's show is going to be fun because we're talking through just something Mason and I were actually discussing on our own regarding our own businesses. But before we get into that, Mason, how's it going? It's going well. Uh, it's towards the end of 2023. Uh, business is going well. Sales are up. Acquisitions are are down a little bit. But um, as we continue to grow and evolve in our businesses, I think this episode is going to be uh, both fun for us and potentially disheartening for others, because I think we're putting both of what our active businesses are uh, through the ringer. Yeah, no, I agreed entirely. And for the listeners, what I said, I meant this is a conversation Mason and I have been having for a while now and working on correcting, which is how sustainable over the course of 5, 10, 20 years is the simple buying and selling of land. That is what we're going to be discussing here today. Yeah, it's uh, realized we're coming at this not from a place of um, fear, but a place of excitement because this is yeah. both of our active businesses. We're both, if you look at our P&L, a majority of the income we make is from flipping land. And I think both of us can agree that this is not a sustainable business, uh, at least not at the level that we're currently executing on and looking to execute on in the coming years. I don't think in 15, 20 years, this business is going to exist any way that we uh, think it will. But before we really talk about that, for anyone that's just tuning in for the first time, let's explain what land flipping even is in a couple simple sentences. Yeah, to be very clear... What we're talking about is just the simple buying and selling of land where you're cold calling or texting, sending out mailers, getting land under contract, and then reselling it for more with no value add, no nothing, no problems being solved beyond convenience for the seller. Exactly. And I've, I've said it in other episodes of, I view my business almost as a pawn shop or a used car dealership. And if you go down the road, there's plenty of pawn shops and plenty of used car dealerships, and we're starting to see that a little bit more in the land flipping space. But whenever we're talking about business and sustainability in a future, you always have to look at the value equation. And Dan hit the nail on the head of one of the big components of value add that we do is helping sellers. Now, a lot of our sellers are distressed of Maybe they're older, maybe they had bills come up and they're just not using that piece of land. And we target our marketing towards those people sometimes of let us help you get out of that situation. And while that's adding value and you hear the, the, the idea of you make your money when you buy and there is truth for that, it's, it's not always going to last because a lot of the times you need to be adding value more on the sales side. And I guess, I guess just buying something for cheap doesn't necessarily answer that question. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. I'm glad you brought that up because there are so many things. In fact, we did a whole episode on ridiculous things we get repeated all the time. 
Uh, but there are so many things I've heard people say as if they're truth all the time that are not. And, and making money on the buy is one of those things. Sometimes you make money on the buy, but oftentimes it's, it's on the value add, whether that's new construction or rehab or just creative operations, whatever that might be. And this is a great example of that. So to, to summarize what, what we're trying to say to start here is we're only talking about the simple buying and selling where you, you don't do anything or solve any problem beyond convenience for the seller. Uh, so Mason, do you want to maybe speak to some of the ways that you're evolving your business to be more sustainable as we move forward here? Oh yeah. I, I, I think you said it of, um, a few of the things that we do, you know, beyond subdivisions and new builds, which we'll, we'll spend a good amount of time kind of expanding on that. I think that whenever you hear the models that we're talking about and comparing the active business to the pawn shop or the used car dealership, a good used car dealership doesn't just buy an old crappy car and resells it just the same way. They go in and they fix it up. And whenever you can see that there is potential with land, whether it's the creation of new inventory or putting something bright and shiny and new on it, that's how we're looking at pivoting our business. But I think before going into all of the pivots, I want to spend time talking about what you and I do and a lot of our friends do on the side, which is the coaching and consulting and all the land programs that exist out there mm -hmm. where, you know, I think both of us kind of got exposed to real estate investing, you know, at the kind of in the sexy way from podcasts like Bigger Pockets and, you know, shows like ours. And I think that I don't know if you experienced the same thing. I can tell you, I experienced it in my business. I'm just like pulling some papers out here. If you're watching the video of letters that I've received in my business, people offering me cash for land all the time of mm -hmm. how many sellers do you talk to that have never received a postcard or a letter or a phone call for their land? What's competition looking like in this space? Well, none. I I'm glad you said this because having done this for a number of years, I've watched this change. I mean, four years ago, I could get a deal with a couple hundred mailers, sometimes less. That is not the case anywhere that I'm doing business today. Uh, there are so many people teaching land, right? Like you said, it's the new sexy thing because there's a building boom that's coming here because there's an inventory shortage of housing, especially in the Southeast. And so, yeah, I get endless amounts of mail even after I've only owned land for a few months from other attempting or pe people attempting to be land flippers. Oh yeah. And I, <laughs> um, I, I think attempting, um, should be in quotes because yeah. all of the people, and I, and I've said this, I've said this on other episodes. I, I say it in my business all the time of yeah. coaching and consulting, because while we don't think it's a sustainable business, we're both making money flipping land. And I foresee us making money for several more years just flipping land. I think it's always going to be a part of my business. But where Dan says attempt to flip land, all these people where sometimes they'll send me blind offers that are shit, I'd consider it. That's not too far off what list price is. And I do the math and say, okay, well, my investors are going to make 25%, 30% cash on cash, and I'll make four or $5,000 profit. That's not a bad deal at all. And I'll call them back and say, hey, I got your offer. It's almost right. Let's talk about it. And I have never once in my entire life received a callback. And yep. for all of you listening to it, 
I know some of you guys and you have never called me back. I mean, that's while competition is increasing, there's more people going out there doing it. Pareto principle, there's 20% of us doing 80% of the deals. Um, you can still win in this space if you freaking call people back. And <laughs> I, I don't know how much to say on that uh, other than just call people back if you're attempting to start this business because there is still money to be made on it, um, even though there is an increase in competition and a lot more people are doing it. And adding it to their home business, whether it's single family homes and rentals or wholesaling houses and that sort of thing. Yeah, no, you make a great point there. And in this specific niche, I feel like, you know, to the Pareto principle, it's not 80-20, it's like 595%. Because same thing, I have had a number of lots over the years that sat longer than I wanted, and I started getting mailers on them. I've never, never got a call back when I called one of those those mailers. It's it's ridiculous. What are, what are these people doing? Just wasting money on mail? I, I, I don't know. I don't get it. But you're right in that, although there's more competition, a lot of it is garbage. Agreed. Agreed. And that, that should give you hope, whatever business it is, because land is still in a space where you're not quite competing with the institutional investors. But as I've started, you, you sent me a great article um, from Oak Tree Capital Group. And uh, as I read more into the markets and what's going on in single family home buildings, and you see Berkshire Hathaway putting $800 million into DR Horton single family home builders and Big, big money, billions and billions of dollars going into new construction and land acquisition. I'm seeing more people in my professional network that were doing this on their own that are going to start to work for these large companies that are starting to figure it out because that's one of the other value add components. And Dan, I think you can speak to this better than I can of what are builders bad at and what are we good at yeah. and yeah, how is that gap kind of closing as institutional money gets into the market? Great question. So builders know how to put up new housing. They know new construction. They do not know land acquisitions, which has played in our favor historically in that if they get to buy a piece of land at 90 cents on the dollar, they think that's a great deal. You know, I sold a lot, closed this month to DR Horton. Speaking with the land acquisition guy for all of Southwest Florida for DR Horton, they desperately need help because they just don't know how to do it. They're calling realtors and brokers and that's their main thing, but uh, they are getting better to your point. You know, I had a hedge, a couple hedge fund guys reach out to me this year, really wanting to get into land and specifically going out after scattered infill lots. So you're right in that more sophisticated people that know how to get or go direct to seller are linking up with some of these big builders uh, but there is still an opportunity there for the time being. Agreed. Agreed. And and I, I think that kind of our next point of how you can still make this a sustainable business where yeah, I was just looking on my phone where my portfolio value <laughs> over the past, my investments in stocks and everything over the past few years is down like 12 and a half, 13%, um, which is not a great investment. Um in my mind, uh, it'll bounce back and I understand how markets work and everything like that. But I think that where people will see success in this business, despite the level of competition and doing it in a way that doesn't add value is really focusing on the seller financing component of it, where you see all these fluctuations in the market and interest rates are at a 25 year high right now. Uh, they're over 8% on 30 year fixed mortgage. Where if you buy land, say a 
I don't know. Uh, let's look at the last deal I did that I closed this morning. We purchased it for $18,400. We sold it for $35,000 on the market. It's a cash transaction, but say it wasn't a cash transaction and I did it on terms for $30,000 with a 10% down payment. If you annualize those returns, I'm making a great return over the next five to 10 years. And I think focusing on the owner financing component of achieving an in-between uh, 10 and 12% annualized return, um, that's a really great way to look at things because you hear a lot about the 1% rule in single family homes. And I don't know where people are achieving that unless they're doing new construction, but I get the deals sent to me all the time, which I brought to you, Dan, and you say, don't freaking touch that deal of the $120,000 duplex in the middle of your hometown or something like that in the Midwest <laughs> to bet. <laughs> yes. Uh, all, all these crazy problems with it where it's like, okay, well, I could put $25,000 down and I'll cash flow to $2,500 a year after all expenses and debt. I can get better returns doing owner financing on land. I want to hear your thoughts kind of about creating a side hustle business doing that. So yeah, I could do a whole podcast on the ridiculousness of buying shitty real estate in the Midwest, but I'll, uh, I'll put that aside for now. So the point you're making here is solving the problem of a lack of financing options in the land space uh, and that being your value add to this business. And so if I'm offering my land for sale with a low down payment on terms, that could be the value add that makes this a sustainable business. Because again, there are no big lenders for land unless you're going to go put a house on it in the very near future. <clears throat> and so I like this model too, because with land, it's normal to charge 10 to 12% interest. You know, I sold two lots in Palm Bay recently. I think they were at 10.5 or 10.9% interest. Got one in, in North Carolina selling that. I think that's only eight, but that's still a solid interest rate, especially because not only is there that interest being charged on my original principal, that interest is also being charged on the profit that I just created. So it's a very substantial return. And that is one way to create a more sustainable business where you're actually adding value to the market by being the bank ultimately. So no, I, I think that's a great option if that's what you want to do. And Dan and I have a different perspective than most people of when we're saying sustainable business, we're looking at businesses that can have an EBITDA or earnings before income taxes, depreciation, and amortization of over a million dollars a year. True, pure, pure profit business over a million dollars a year. And I think as the competition gets more intense, uh, as more institutional money starts going into the land acquisition space rather than the land financing space, um, being able to create a business where a lot of people's goals are, I want to get $5,000 a month in cash flow so I can leave my job. Of uh, If you do a few of those notes, and if you have saved up enough money to acquire the land on cash yourself, that might be an easier way to get to that $5,000 a month uh, number than the single family home route. Of getting 5,000 profit per month single family homes is very, very hard. It takes a lot of money, a lot of headaches. Where land, you don't get those headaches. And that's what you're going to hear from the gurus out there of no tenants, termites and toilets, You know, focus on land. You're going to get all this amazing cash flow. And you have frustrations with it. I'm dealing with 
the most annoying foreclosure, deed in lieu of foreclosure that's just going on and on. And you get headaches with this business just like anything else. But it is a lower barrier to entry to get a great return on a product that assuming there is value and potential should your buyer default or there is some issue with the land. Um, it's a great, great model to potentially replace your income. So don't necessarily think that um, creating a portfolio of land notes is a bad idea. There's land note buyers. And I think that at the end of the day, it's um, it's just a different way to look at adding a little bit of money to your portfolio in a short-term note. Because most of these notes, I don't know what your longest one is, Dan. Mine's, I think, a six-year note. Uh, so it's not yeah, a 30-year mortgage. Yeah. And a lot of times these people pay it off earlier from my experience. Um, so agreed, agreed fully there. So that's, that's option number one for value add is creating a, a business where you're the lender and you're adding financing to an asset that people often cannot get financing for. Agreed. Agreed. And that's a win right there. But what as staying within the niche of land, land flipping, um, and I, I think that's kind of where we want to talk about is we, we have pivot here, but I think it's more about how can we integrate our business of how can we either horizontally or vertically integrate a new, for the healthcare people that listen, a new service line into our business potentially of, okay, you can acquire land at a discount. That's awesome. That is a skill that most people don't have. What can you do with that land and what type of land would you target that would have Let's start with the most breadth, the most value add opportunity. Um, and for me, that's something that you have the opportunity to take a large piece of land and it has development potential and subdivision potential. Um, and if you can focus on finding land that looks like that, and I think we should maybe get technical of it. How do you, how do you, Dan, search for subdivide opportunities? Yeah. So I'm working on this right now. I want to bookmark. I want to talk through a deal that I'm actually working on and potentially we can bring up some of yours too, and then talk through how to find the market first. So this requires a bit of legwork. You need to talk to people in the land space, talk to realtors, talk to title companies. Title companies actually, if you talk to the marketing person for a title company, you can get a lot of information and people don't realize that. And so I look for places where there is an option to subdivide that's very simple. I don't, for example, I, I, I know someone that actually, you know him too, Mason, that did a big subdivide project in Pueblo, Colorado, chopping these lots, these big lots up into quarter acre, 10,000 square foot lots, taking years and years and years, millions and millions of dollars. That is not what I want to do. That's risky. That is a lot of capital at risk for a long period of time. What I want is, hey, I just need to pay a civil engineer to redraw the plat, pay a surveyor to go out and survey and record it myself or use my title agent to record it, and then I'm done. So how do I find places like that where that's feasible in, uh, uh, you know, well, by right, that's the word I was looking to, feasible by right where I don't have to go through a process with the county. And so I have found those places myself by talking to title agents, realtors, other investors, friends in the space. Uh, and then I go and I pull the, you know, five plus acres or in El Paso County, Colorado, you can only split into 35 or bigger without uh, having to go through any sort of process with the city. So I pull 100 plus acre tracks. So that's how I do it. Mason, how do you do it? Same thing. Same thing of like from, from macro to micro of 
look at places where there's inventory constraints of where there's opportunities of if you put a new build on the market, how quickly is that going to sell? And if you don't have access to the MLS through a realtor or connection, go on Zillow, look at new builds and look at what's selling and see what it is and do it with a market that you potentially have familiarity with of, you mentioned El Paso County, Colorado. That's where Colorado Springs is. That's where you and I both live of El Paso County has a few different ways that you can look at subdividing the property of if it's, if you're doing a minor subdivision and the land is zoned, uh, RU five, which is five acre lots of, you can buy a 35 acre lot and subdivide that into four, eight or nine acre lots. Because as soon as you get above four lots in a subdivision, you have to go through a lot more processes. And whenever you are looking at these county regulations, the way you get to them is one, you can say something as simple as El Paso County, how do I subdivide my land? Or Maricopa County, Arizona, where I have a subdivide going on right now as well. Um, and look for what Dan's talking about, which is the over-the-counter process. You get the surveyor out there, you get the engineer out there to do a boundaries and stakes and then divide up the lots. And you don't even actually have to uh, do any public, uh, public work or public utility work or easement work to get those to be completed. Because when you look at a good, simple, over-the-counter minor subdivision process, uh, it's just the paper that matters is kind of what Dan's saying is after all that, that work gets done, you get the new legal descriptions, you get the new uh, assessor to parcel number, and then they get recorded with the county and you're able to go off and sell those individual lots without having to actually do anything. When you start getting into the major subdivision ones, which is more like what you were talking about in Pueblo, you can't just draw all these lots and get them done. You've got to, depending on the county, you have to actually put the roads in where the easements have been deeded and you have to extend the utilities out to it. You have to do all of this extra work that uh, while it will add value, it will take an immense amount of time and depending on the county and how the counties work where I hate to say it, but a lot of this is who you know of when you're working in some of these smaller counties or larger counties. Are you friends with the people that are sitting in the planning and zoning office and on the city and town halls and everything like that? And if not, you're going to be potentially pushed to the back of the line because the big guy in town that does it all the time is going to be at the front always. So that's what I think you need to look for is Google the county that you know there's inventory constraints and how do I subdivide my land and look at minor subdivision, minor subdivision processes. Yeah, that was well said, Mason. And and we probably should have said this first, but the the overarching point here is you always increase not always you almost always increase value when you go smaller and smaller. So an easy analogy would be if I go to Costco and I buy a big thing of sixty waters and they're, you know, I don't know, a few cents a piece, it's very cheap, but it costs more overall to buy in bulk. Whereas if I go to the gas station, a water's gonna cost me two ninety nine or whatever. But it's just one water, right? So as you as you split that up, it gets more expensive. And, and conceptually, so using a real-life example today of where I'm debating what size we should split these lots or this overarching lot into, we have 63 acres in North Carolina. We're working through what it's going to take to subdivide this, you know, making sure the soils and all that are, are good to build on. And we thought, you know, doing three 20-acre lots at 200 or 250 a piece would be a lot easier but 
that sales price is far less accessible, far less reachable to as many people. Whereas if we divide it into six 90-ish thousand dollar lots, more people can afford that. And so that that ultimately is what you're doing when you take a big lot and you subdivide it. Number one, you're creating new inventory, but you're creating less expensive, ready-to-go inventory that more people can reach. That that right there of the co- the Costco analogy makes a ton of sense. Where I think about kid, the entrepreneurial kids in high school that would go sell candy for a dollar a candy bar. And in my mind, when I was a kid, I was like, how are they making money on it? It costs a dollar per candy bar at the gas station. But if you go buy a hundred pack for $12 at Costco, that, I mean, that's a, that's a really great way to look at it. And I think that, uh, a way to kind of analyze that, that backend, uh, disposition strategy with how many lots you, you look at a few things that we're talking about of, uh, simplicity of process, timeliness of process and cost of process, and then what is actually selling. Once again, of don't go into markets where there's no sales data, but if you go into wherever you are in North Carolina and you see, okay, how many in the last six months, how many 60-acre lots sold? And you're like, three. Okay, great. How many 10-acre lots sold? Okay, 10. How many 5-acre lots sold? Oh, 400. Okay, that's where the most demand is, and I think sometimes a lot of people in the land space might get held up of why would someone want a smaller lot? Because it's a pain in the ass to take care of a larger lot. You know, get out of your own head, get out of your own way and and look at that. But I think when you look at what's actually selling, it actually opens up the amount of opportunities that are available where subdivide opportunities that I'm looking at in, in Colorado Springs in my backyard, they're on market deals. And I can make those numbers work on market, buying land on market in 2023, where prices have not been adjusted yet. Now, if you can combine the skills that you learned in land flipping and acquire them off market, where you already have value built in, where if you went and sold the large piece on market, and then you take it and subdivide it, you start seeing how you can stack your profits um, to make them grow a lot more. But I think the next the next thing that I would look at with doing it is we talked about not doing anything to the land uh, beyond subdividing it on paper, I think the extension of horizontal development could be a huge attractive piece. And um, what would that look like for your North Carolina one if you horizontally developed it? Well, so I don't think that would be a good piece for it. Uh, These are going to be big mountain acreage. You know, this is outside of Asheville, North Carolina. These are going to be very likely homesteads or just somebody who loves the area and wants to live there. But I'm glad you asked that because I just had a conversation with that Southwest Florida land acquisition representative for DR Port. And for them, yes, they buy infill lots like the one they just bought from me in Cape Coral, but they're also looking for developers. And remember guys, that does not mean new construction necessarily. A lot of times developers is just referring to the people that come in and bring in streets and roads and utilities. Again, DR Horton, they're looking for developers to bring them small subdivisions ready to go where they can build out then all the new construction. And so this is another great way to go about it is to work backwards and talk to the land acquisition people for some of these major builders, figure out what they're looking for. And and oftentimes they'll say, hey, if you can, you know, outside of this metro or in this area, 
if you can bring me a subdivision where all the streets and roads are in, right? All, all the lots are ready to go. Utilities are extended. We'll buy it from you at a substantial premium. Because again, what do they know how to do? They know how to build. And so bringing them that land ready to go is a great way to make a huge margin and to have it locked in ahead of time. Because if you talk to the land acquisition rep, you show them what you're working on the land, they can tell you as you're going through the due diligence process, yes, that finish would be perfect. You can have it as a pre-sale under contract way ahead of time. So that's another way to do it. Oh, yeah. Well, and to add to add to that, I walked the property over the weekend, uh, subdivide opportunity out here in El Paso County, walked it with a realtor and a builder. The realtor is like, man, if we built on these or in dominiums or semi lug not luxury, but semi-custom homes, I could pre-sell these to people local and people in Texas and Florida and California instantly on social media. And the builder's looking at it and is like, this is such a beautiful piece of land, but it's it's not ready to get built on. I don't know what to do there. And so I look at it and I say, okay, look, this is how we would subdivide it. And I'm not a surveyor and engineer. I'm just some guy. We would put the road right here, utility access here, and these would be prime build spots. And so here's electric right here. We would dig a well and we'd either do four individual wells or a shared well agreement. And he's like, oh, yeah, I could build the crap out of these lots and we would make X amount of dollars and I could build at these costs and everything. And it's the recognition that there's silos where all of us are in. And if you can start being the person, you don't have to necessarily do all of it. You don't have to start your own construction company. You don't have to start a surveying and engineering company and all these different things. But if you can connect the dots, if you can be the orchestrator of these types of deals, that right there is where there's more money to be made than, in my mind, anywhere else in this space. Because from cheap acquisition, you make your money when you buy, to adding value, to connecting the people that have the pockets to buy at market price without having to go to market. Um, it's it's an insane business that you can create from something that is relatively simple because the processes we're talking about aren't complicated. They're not hidden. They're online. Um, it exists. Dan and I talk about it all the time. So um, just recognize that your skill in this space is the exact opposite of what a lot of the people that are making the most money is and you can make just as much money as them yeah and, and there's a lot i want to add to that one being as you learn these additional skills these value add skills you can go buy market at or close to or go buy market go buy land at or close to market value and still make a huge profit on it because you know how to add value further and then if you end up getting the big piece at a discount and you add the value, you're just stacking profits on top of each other, like you said. So, all right. Number one was being the financier. Number two was doing the subdivide. And then number three was doing the horizontal work of bringing it in utilities and streets and roads. It doesn't necessarily have to be that uh, substantial. It could just be a dirt road and extending power. You know, we had Trevor Probant on a few weeks ago, and that's really what he does is subdivides brings in dirt roads and power, and he makes huge margins doing that. But uh, those are three ways. What else do we have, Mason? I think uh, the next one is almost the opposite of the subdivide, which is the assemblage. And 
that was something that I walked uh, on Wednesday, actually, was an assemblage opportunity in Denver where it would be, it's actually a land play. Although a lot of people that would look at this deal wouldn't view it as a land play of it's three commercial buildings next door to each other. And I'm giving the example and then I think that I'll explain what it is. Three commercial buildings right next to each other. They're all adjacent. Um, they're all zoned the same, which is CMX5, which is commercial mixed-use five-story building. And what we would do with a play like this, I think it totals about one acre. And so when we're looking at the properties, we're actually looking at it on a per-acre basis rather than what the rent roll is and what the cash-on-cash cash return is and all of that because we would take those three properties that are in an older part of Denver, great area, and we would combine them into one property, scrape all the buildings, gut everything, and build a five-story building. Um, and that's what an assemblage is. It's taking a bunch of lots and combining it into one that you could only have the freedom and flexibility to build on something that's bigger and larger. And that right there is a huge value-add play because one, a five-story apartment building right next to University of Denver right next to the light rail, right next to all these beautiful new developments that are coming up uh, would be a huge moneymaker. But two, if you think about the pain and frustration in doing a project like that, think about it of, can you go down into suburbia and convince your five neighbors to sell their homes so you can build an apartment complex there? Makes you sound like you're the bad guy from a Disney movie or something like that, like an up. Yeah. And it's, uh, uh, yeah. um, there is the way where sometimes bigger is better. And I think assemblages are a really fun way to solve a problem in the market of there's not enough space. So you create the space. Yeah. And, and it could be even simpler than that. You know, I see this so frequently and I don't know why, but across the country in different markets, consistently the commercial zone lots are really small. Pueblo West, Colorado. I just saw this in Lehigh Acres, uh, uh, Florida, where there's skinny bowling alley lots and you got to buy two, three, four of them next to each other in order to fit a substantial building. So really simply, it's bringing together several lots so that the larger is worth far more than the sum of its parts individually. That's really all an assemblage is. Absolutely. And it's not just commercial too. Uh, I remember one of my... I think my second or third marketing campaign I ever did, I did to South Fork, Colorado, which is uh, east of Pagosa Springs, which is a market I've invested heavily in. And uh, there was a neighborhood there where I didn't realize it at the time, but you needed four lots to be able to do anything. Yep. The lots by themselves are worth nothing. Um, they are worth less than whatever the tax burden is. So 50 bucks, 100 bucks. But if you could get four of them, they're worth 30,000. And if you can kind of play that puzzle master piece, um, there's a lot of opportunities in a lot of markets because what we're talking about with the subdivides, there's been the people that have gone out and subdivide and subdivided these lots back before there was a lot more rules and regulations. And there's zero development potential because they are very small. They don't meet the minimum setback requirements. So whenever you're thinking of building a marketing campaign, should you have the patience, uh, which God bless all those that are willing to do something like that. There's a lot of money in it. Um, you, instead of looking at a minimum acreage size, you're looking at a maximum acreage size. Um, and then you can kind of target those, those particular ones. But, uh, after, after assemblages, so we talked about subdivides and, 
uh, now going back to, um, we're talking about zoning a little bit. What's another value add opportunity that you can look at? Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned those CX-5 zoned buildings or, or ultimately lots in Denver. So this is not something I've done, but I just watched a friend of mine do it in Denver, not too far from where you're talking about. There was an old, old hotel in an area of town that's getting revamped quickly. So for all intents and purposes, it was a vacant lot where the hotel just needs scraped. And the way that the lot was zoned, I, I don't have the zoning up there uh, memorized. I believe it was probably just CX3. He could only do three stories. But a huge value add play, to your point about being able to build a, an apartment, is can we get a couple more stories? Can we change the zoning to allow uh, two, three, four more levels to this apartment building, making it so we can fit you know, substantially more units? And I watched him do this over the course of a year. He took that piece of land that had the old hotel. He went through the process with uh, the local zoning. I'm totally blanking on the, the county name on the zoning department, and he got it approved for up to five levels from three to five. And he was able to make a $300,000 margin because of that. And so that's a great example of another way to add value to land by making it more useful simply by changing what the county will allow you to build. And uh, that is funny because I, I, I wonder if I looked at that lot while I was down there um, where there used to be an old hotel. Uh, <laughs> but maybe it, the Blue Sky Motel. Okay, no, it wasn't that one then. But it what what Dan's saying is that person did it in potentially w whatever county that was. It could have been Denver, Jefferson, or Adams or Arapahoe, which are not easy counties to do business in. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you go into I don't know, other counties within the state of Colorado or throughout the country where it's a lot easier to do business in, just like we were talking about the minor subdivision of the over-the-counter process. Certain counties that I've worked in, when you're looking at doing, go onto the planning and zoning website and look at zoning request forms and see what the process looks like. Some of them are as simple as saying, yeah, that's a commercial lot. Change it to residential. All you have to do is this one form and that's it. And it makes more sense to have it or vice versa of there are certain areas in certain smaller towns where it's kind of more of a European vibe where it's small home, small home, a business, small home apartment, that kind of thing. And if you can find those areas where it's super simple to do that and you talk to the locals where they'll make assumptions of what you think the best value is, talk to the people that are actually in the space and what they want, talk to the neighbors of if you go back to the original idea of the main value add, the main skill set that we have is acquiring land for cheap. If you can acquire it for cheap and you know you can make money regardless of any zoning changes, see what's wanted. Because in a lot of times you would never expect of, oh, a convenience store right here is what people really, really want of change the zoning to allow for that and sell it to a convenience store company and make 10 times as much money as you would have thought. Beyond rezoning, um, as I look at this list and they give me headaches, Dan, what are other value-add opportunities that you can focus on within this business? Solving title issues. That's uh, another big one we had here. And so this is more on the acquisition as opposed to once you acquire it. Uh, but at the end of the day, you can add value and 
buy land at a discount because you do this by solving title issues of all kinds. So, I mean, there's lots and lots of examples, but some easy ones are, are probate where sellers, they don't know what to do. They just inherited the land. Maybe they have to coordinate uh, communication between three siblings, three people that have inherited the property. They need a good lawyer. That's been a way we've gotten tons of deals. You know, liens of all kind. I, I, I One time I had a lot where he had a, a lien from the metro district and it was just a landscaping thing. And I just had the grass cut and he was thrilled that I went and solved it, got the lien removed, I bought it at a discount. Um, quiet title, tax liens. I mean, it goes on and on. But any sort of issue that consistently shows up on the title of land, if you can solve it, you can get deals there. And that, that's more sustainable because people are always going to die. Tax liens are always going to be a problem. So Absolutely. And, and this is where you're adding another partner to the team, where you need an attorney to get most of these issues resolved. And I think a lot of times people just Google the attorneys and the attorneys that are going to show up on Google, yeah, they're probably going to be good. They're probably going to be expensive too, where I've got an attorney that I work with where she's not amazing. She's not slow. She'll never listen to this episode um, because I don't know if she knows how the internet works. But she's kind of retirement age, and she can get work done for me kind of on, as a side hustle. So if you know attorneys in your network that are licensed in the state that you're doing business in and that have familiarity with stuff like this, they're a great person to add to your team because the process, like Quiet Title, for instance, it's not a complicated process. It just takes time. It takes like six months you yeah. know, to get done. And you just need an attorney to do these couple of things cost you a thousand bucks or 500 bucks, or depending on the relationships you build a little bit of money, but the average person doesn't know how to do it because with everything that we're talking about is we get more complex and there there's more variables at play with all these different value add opportunities and aspects of the business. Most people in their life do one or two real estate transactions, the single family homes that they buy for themselves, maybe a piece of land that they buy on vacation or maybe one or two investment properties or something like that. But typically it's just one single family home transaction. So whenever you start bringing up stuff like probate and quiet title and a bankruptcy lien versus or treasurer's deed versus all these other things, if you can make it easy on people, that is adding extreme value because most people don't know how to do it. And to be honest, I have probate deals I pass up on because I don't feel like doing it. Um, so if you can make that your niche within the space, you can have a lot of success. Yeah. And Mason just, I think hit the nail on the head where he goes, well, I pass on some of these because I don't want to deal with it. And, and that's the key, right? With all these strategies, it's dealing with the annoying, you know, work that other people don't want to do, whether it's dealing with the county to subdivide or, you know, a, a legal process to quiet title or go through probate. It's really what all this is. Uh, so that was a good summary there, Mason. So I think the last one we want to hit on is is actual building, new construction. What's a more clear value at play than putting a building on a lot? That's actually the first thing that I ever did and, and learned about when it comes to land and development was actually building a house. Well, and I'm I'm jealous of you. Of uh, that that's such a great way to start because I think um when for for a lot of us that use the Zillow and Redfin of go look at recent sales, go pick an area, one of these counties or cities or subdivisions that you're looking at. 
don't filter for anything, just filter by sold and newest and click on everything and look at what the days on market are. And I guarantee you in some of these areas, the days on market for homes are this and the days on market for land is this. And so if you can figure out how to build new, there is a much greater demand for that product than there is for the person that has to buy something and then build on it themselves. Because just like the builders that we're talking about, that look at a vacant piece of land that isn't necessarily horizontally developed or is off market and it doesn't compute in their brain. Think about the average individual. Like they, they just don't understand what you can do. We look at it as a blank canvas. They look at it as just a black box of nothingness. So Dan, how do you, um, whether you're a full-time or part-time investor, how would you approach building on land that you acquired at a discount? So the way that I like to do this, in my opinion, it's all about finding the right contractor, incentivizing them correctly, and, and just making the, the wheel turn, so to speak. And so I'm going down to a, uh, a market in Florida here next month, end of next month, and it's a place I've been buying and selling a lot of land, but new construction there is selling like wildfire. It's crazy. And I want to get new builds going down there. And so the way that I'm going to do that is I'll get referrals from my realtor. I'm going to go meet with some local GCs. I'll say, hey, this is obviously a a simple synopsis. I'm leaving out detail here, but I'll say, hey, Mason, assuming you're the GC, I'm going to buy a bunch of lots. They're going to be prime, super easy, infill, everything available, as easy as it gets to build. I'm going to finance it. I'm going to get them sold oftentimes ahead of time. And you go build it and we'll just split the profit at the end. You put everything in at cost. I'll put everything in at cost. And we'll split the profit at the end. Now, of course, there's lots of screening of the contractor and references and verification. They know what they're doing and all that. But having done this multiple ways, because I have also done it where I just pay the contractor a fee. And guys, at the end of the day, I'm not planning to do it that way uh, again, because humans are incentive driven and being incentive driven, they need to take a portion of the profit from my experience to really get this done efficiently and to make it more passive for me. I won't make as much money, but it's more passive, and, and especially if I'm going to be out of state. So all that to say, I like to focus on what I'm good at, which is buying prime land at a discount and prime markets, and then orchestrating things, finding the right GC and putting them in place to do the new construction where I just oversee and finance it. And the, I think the reason, and, and you talked about screening contractors, and we, we've all had lessons learned with bad contractors. I think everyone everywhere has had that experience with the bad contractor of the type of person that you want to work with on a deal with like this is the one that is transparent in their numbers because mm-hmm. you should know what their costs are. And I have no problem paying contractors whatever their fee is to get work done. However, whenever you're looking at a profit split, you you want them to make money and you want to make money. And if the contractor's building into extra fees and all this extra stuff, whenever it's, hey, look, we'll make a lot more money together by just splitting the profit and you working at costs. And it's it's a really cool model and it's an exciting model that I'm watching you do and looking at, you know, doing starting to do myself and wanting to bring construction in-house eventually and all these different different ideas and everything that we have. But um I think something else where if actually building a home seems a little scary, something that you can look at as 
in markets that you're in and markets that I'm in, the manu- the manufactured home, that's standard. Mm. And if you can develop a good relationship with a manufactured home dealer and say, hey, I bought this piece of land, how much would it cost for you to come put a brand new manufactured home on it? And you look at those costs and say, okay, well, that'll cost me 160000 all in for the manufactured home, ten grand for the land, and I can look and see that they're selling on market for 250000 there's another opportunity for you to make money in your business that might be quicker sometimes depending on what inventory the manufactured homes uh, people look at or have on, on, on their lots. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think that you make a number of good points there, Mason. And anything else beyond that that you want to add as far as other strategies or expanding on any of the strategies we've already talked about? I don't think so. I think, I think, uh, the point that I kind of want to leave people with is for the land flippers out there, um, there's always going to be land available. It's going to be various zoning, various locations, various markets in the country where there's more and less competition. And uh, if you want to create a multi-million dollar business, you need to look at how to integrate it to what the market demands and how to add the most value possible, um, whether it's being the bank that finances the deal or the builder or the developer and understanding those differences. Uh, is how you make a lot of money in this business. Yeah, absolutely. And one other point I want to drive home is both Mason and I today right now are simply buying and selling land. We have a pawn shop aspect to our business, but we both think in terms of decades and we're both, I mean, really, I, I think a business is just a big game of chess and I'm thinking 10 moves ahead, three, four, five years, what am I doing? And I know you do too, to set myself up for five years from now, 10 years from now. And that's really what we're talking about here, guys, is how to have enough tools in your tool belt within the context of land so that in any market, regardless of how competitive this gets, regardless of how hard it becomes to buy at a substantial discount, you can still take a piece of land and profit on it and do that for decades to come. Mic drop moment. Awesome, Dan. Well, this was fun, and I hope you guys are inspired uh, by the opportunities within land and Until next time, this is Mason McDonald and Dan Habercost for the Big Picture Blueprint signing off. And that's it for today's episode of the Big Picture Blueprint. If you found it helpful, please share it with your friends or anyone you think that it could benefit. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating, and we'll see you in the next episode.